Well, really sad news to hear about the passing of uh, Jim Price, who uh, most of us remember as, uh, well, remember, he was doing games up until a month ago, uh, who most of us know as uh, the radio color commentator uh, for the Detroit Tigers. Um, Of course, he came to Detroit um, back in the 60s. He was Bill Freehand's backup catcher on the 1968 World Series team. And I think we'll talk about this a little bit later on with with Lloyd, Guy, and Nick um, in the crosstalk. But it's uh, it's pretty amazing how, how a guy who was a backup catcher here for five seasons really stuck around and made himself a huge part of uh, not only the Detroit Tigers community, but, but the Detroit community uh, overall. And uh, I, I never had the pleasure of, of meeting the man. And, of course, everyone says really nice things uh, about you after you pass away. But even when he was alive, I heard nothing but good things about Jim Price. Um, so we'll talk about that uh, a little later on. We love our broadcasters in this town. And if we've been listening to someone for a long time and we lose them, it's very, very tough. So we'll, we'll touch on, on this a little bit later. Uh, another sad story yesterday, the southbound uh, Southfield Freeway was closed near Ford Road for a number of hours during the afternoon rush after a partially clothed woman who appeared to be suffering a mental health episode. She was hit and killed by a driver who did not stop. Uh, witnesses say the 62-year-old woman, she was dancing in the middle of the highway when she was hit. Her family was notified and says that she actually does have a history of mental illness. And police are asking the public to contact them if they have any information on the car um, or the driver that hit her. So turnout was low for yesterday's primary. It's not, not a huge surprise for an August primary in a non-presidential election year. couple of races of note. Westland incumbent Mayor Mike Londo and State Rep Kevin Coleman, they were the top two vote getters, so they'll face off against, uh, again in November in the general. Uh, pretty close. They were only separated by about 300 votes. And Warren, the Jim Fouts-backed candidate, George Demas, uh, he's a former member of city council. Um, and State Rep Lori Stone were elected to run again against each other for the city's top job in November. Uh, and, of course, if Coleman wins in Westland and Stone wins in Warren, the Democrats could lose their two-seat majority in the state house uh, until a special election is held to replace them. Those are um, uh, pretty strong Democrat strongholds, but uh, stranger things have happened. In battled East Point Mayor Monique Owens, she's facing felony charges for facing co- uh, for scamming COVID-19 grant money. She lost her primary to former city councilman Michael Kleinfeld and retired educator Mary Hall Rayford. They'll run uh, against each other for mayor in November. Down in Ohio, this was the, the big uh, national issue on the ballot. Ohio residents voted to reject a measure that would have made it harder to change the state's constitution. This is Fox 19 Cincinnati's Candace Hare. The Associated Press has actually called this race based off what they've seen from the data saying that no is going to wind up having the majority of votes. That's according to their data calculations. Uh, At this point in time here in Hamilton County, only about 37% of the precincts are reporting, so they still have a long way to go. Even if major outlets like the Associated Press have called the race, those votes, of course, are still counted. Uh, Places like Claremont County and Warren County, majority of them voted yes, um, but again, those margins, not enough to really overcome the high turnout that we've seen in some of these more metropolitan areas. UAW President Sean Fain, he took to Facebook Live last night 
after receiving Stellantis's opening negotiations offer. And uh, here's what he thought of it. So I'll tell you what, brothers and sisters, when we get things like this from the company and they want to sit there and talk about they're not asking for concessions or looking for concessions, everything they're looking for in this document is about concessions. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do with, with their proposal. I'm going to file it in its proper place because that's where it belongs, the trash, because that's what it is. Wasn't a fan, to put it mildly. He, he voiced his frustration at what he says is Stellantis's list of demands, which includes uh, punishment for workers who, who call off work, um, not eliminating the tiered wage system, which uh, is, is, is a huge sticking point, And it was a huge sticking point in the UPS negotiations. Uh, cuts to medica- medical coverage, as well as changes to the profit sharing formula and a decrease of 401k contributions. Um, and uh, Sean Fade says that the proposal was management choosing to spit in their faces. An email obtained by the Detroit News from Oxford School District lawyer Ken Chappie reveals that six employees who are facing lawsuit, they were advised to not cooperate with an outside investigation into the Oxford High School shooting because it may defend, uh, it may make defending the lawsuit more difficult. Tur- Attorney Tim Mullins, he's lead counsel for Oxford School District. He was CC'd on the email along with the six employees, and he says that all school employees in question, they have been deposed extensively by the plaintiff attorneys. They've been interviewed extensively by the prosecutor and sheriff's department and that all the material has been made available to guidepost solutions. That's the agency that's conducting this uh, outside investigation, which uh, uh, Oxford School District begrudgingly agreed to uh, after public pressure. Oxford School Superintendent Vicki Markowitz, she was not in that position at the time of the shooting, but she said she was not aware of the emails and that the district has strongly urged employees to speak to guideposts, and many have done so. Uh, guideposts, they they gave an update on the investigation of the school board last night, um, which um, not a whole lot of new information. The full report is actually expected to be released this fall, and uh, family members voiced their continuing frustration over the lack of info from the school district nearly two years after the shooting and uh during jr morning we're going to be playing some very compelling uh audio uh from buck Muir, tate Muir's father uh just just pulls at the heartstrings 24 year old uh jalen brazier he appeared for a preliminary court hearing yesterday after being charged in the murder of his cousin zion foster who is still missing prosecutors. They showed police body camera footage from a Jan- from January of 2022 when they searched Brazier's home after tracing Foster's cell phone to that location. Now on the video, Brazier can be heard uh, trying to joke with the officers as he suggested multiple times that Foster was probably with a boyfriend. And then he later told police that Zion Foster stopped breathing when the two of them had been smoking marijuana together he panicked and he put his her body in a dumpster after originally claiming he was not with her. Uh, and uh, if you remember last summer, DPD, they spent uh, a number of weeks searching Macomb County landfill for Foster's remains and came up empty. And uh, Brazier's due back in court today and they'll decide if uh, he will uh, face uh, charges or not. Um, if, 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 if he'll be back in court, University of Michigan provost, Lori McCauley, she sent out an email earlier this week that threatened to fire and replace 2,300 grad student employees. If their strike is not resolved by August 28th, that's the first day of class. UM graduate employees, uh, organization, they've been on strike, uh, since March. That's the longest strike in their history. 
uh, when they could not agree on a new contract, mostly for wages with the university. Mir Fleischman, he's the spokesman for the UM Graduate Employees Organization. He says that the email is the latest in underhanded strike tactics that the university is using to try to undercut their power. But who cares? U of M, the football team, is ranked number two in the coaches' preseason poll. So who needs school? Supreme Court voted 5-4 to four yesterday to side with President Joe Biden on his ghost gun regulations, uh, which was a surprise. Uh, that, that's uh, put a Texas federal judge's ruling that invalidates the ghost gun rules on hold while the Biden administration appeals the Texas ruling to the Fifth Circuit Court in New Orleans. Uh, these these ghost gun rules, uh, they didn't. They didn't outlaw the sale of anything. They just changed the definition of a firearm under federal law uh, to classify unfinished gun gun parts such as, um, you know, bump stocks or, it, you know, just just individual parts of a gun as firearms themselves requiring a serial number so that they can be tracked. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Amy Coney Barrett, they crossed the aisle to vote with their three liberal colleagues uh, to uphold Biden's rule. And it's possible these regulations could make their way back in front of the Supreme Court. It's first thing with Mike Parsons on WJR. President Biden unveiled the new set of student loan forgiveness plans after the Supreme Court overturned his initial proposal back in June. Late last week, the new Civil Liberties Alliance filed a complaint on behalf of the Cato Institute and the Mackinac Center for Public Policy Against the latest set of student loan relief plans, Patrick Wright, vice president for legal affairs for the Mackinac Center, discusses with Guy Gordon and Lloyd Jackson on JR Morning. Well, within days of the Biden administration's student loan forgiveness plan being ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, it seemed like (laughs) the ink was not yet dry and the Department of Ed was already floating another forgiveness option. Uh, and, And it was this. They wanted to give credit to borrowers for months when they didn't pay as payment in what is known as the Income Driven Repayment Program. Now, ultimately, it would give credit amounting to about $39 billion to 800,000 borrowers. The Biden administration saying that this really corrected what they felt was a mistake by the uh, subcontractors who were managing the loan uh, program. Well, now, uh, the Cato Institute and also the Michigan-based Mackinac Center for Public Policy are filing suit again attacking the plan on constitutional grounds. And we welcome in Patrick Wright, who is Vice President for Legal Affairs for the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Patrick, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, is this one of those things where second verse, verse, same as the first? Is this basically a constitutional question about whether or not it's, it's executive overreach? Yeah, I can reach that level. Um, you, you, It's really a civics question. Did the um, the first the first legislation that they tried this through was the HEROES Act, and the Supreme Court said, no, you don't have the power to do this. Uh, Now they're trying it through the Higher Education Act, um, except that they haven't even bothered to do an executive order. All they've done is two news releases, and news releases just aren't legislation. So do you have to, you would think you have to go through a a rulemaking progress, uh, process rather, Mm -hmm. and, and you have to have some type of public comment. None of that has happened. That's correct. That's one of the claims we make is uh, that the 
administration needed to put this out uh, if they were going to try and do it through executive action and have it be done through the Administrative Procedures Act, which allows people to come in and comment. You can, you know, have the students come in and say it was unfair. You can have the you know, taxpayers, the banks, you can have the people who've paid off their loans, everybody can put in their comments and then you get a supposedly better rule at the at the end and uh, instead what they've done is they've just um, gone and, and set this plan out and done it again through news releases um, and uh, tried to say that that's sufficient. So the, the Biden administration has insisted that the, the plan was administered unfairly. Uh, that it has long offered cancellation after borrowers make 20 or 25 years of payments, but there have been administrative failures that ended up not giving them credit for months when they should have received credit for making payments. Speak to that and, and whether or not that is something that is, you know, is it that you are against that in principle or the way they're going about it? It's the way that they're going about it. Um... We think a lot of the student loan things are bad policy, and, and in this case, bad policy illegally enacted. But let's assume that um, it, it's good policy and that they're correct about everything. Everything you just said can be told to Congress, and Congress can make a determination on, on how to fix it. As a matter of fact, during the CARES Act, for six months, Congress actually stopped student loan payments. And then for 30 months after that, the Biden administration uh, said that it had the unilateral power to continue that and then uh, even have the power to do forgiveness, and that's what the Supreme Court struck down, the forgiveness part in Nebraska v. Biden. So a lot of this is process arguments. Um, there's 45 million people out there with student loans. There's billions, if not trillion dollars of, of debt. There's all kinds of policy arguments that go about into this, but we require those things to be done through Congress. Uh, not uh, a unilateral action of one person. And, and Patrick, it, it seems like, you know, trying to count these non-payments as payments, that uh, it, it's a strategy that uh, is trying to cancel this money before a court can get to it and, and just stop this whole program. Well, that's why the uh, New Civil Liberties Alliance, who's representing us, and, and the other plaintiff is the Cato Institute, as you mentioned. Um, we're in court right now seeking a temporary restraining order uh, from a, a, a federal judge here in Michigan. And we're trying to say you can't do this so that, um, you know, we can prevent the harm being done and, and have these policy discussions in Congress where they need to be, where they need to be made. There's kind of a human cost to this. And, and I'm not saying for a moment that there, there are constitutional questions that shouldn't be argued, and I support what you're doing. But it also, you've got these borrowers getting pulled in a million different directions. You've got the Biden administration promising to deliver relief. And it certainly appears that, that it has led to a, not just a distortion in the market, but to also some of these borrowers being led to make bad choices because of promises that have been made yeah. to them. Well, there are some um, plans that allow for hardship um, and for um, income-driven repayment programs are um, go on for 20 to 25 years, and after you're done with making the, those payments, then whatever's remainder of the loan goes away. So there are some ways to handle the hardship, and obviously there's 45 million borrowers, and there's going to be some people that are in uh, tough situations. So <clears throat> it, it is not as if this question, however, has not been uh, debated at length. Um, 
before Congress. Uh, they just haven't been able to get something to pass. And so while there are some arguments on, on every side, right now um, there's, there is not a, a solution like the Biden administration is proposing here. Patrick, the, these 800,000 borrowers that are affected by this, I guess, Relief 2.0 plan that, that the Biden administration mm-hmm. has floated, who are they? Are they the ones that are at the tail end of their, their loan repayment in the you know, the 10 to 20 year period of, of repaying? Um, I'm obviously don't know all 804,000. The way they were characterized in the April news release was that these were people that have used forbearance, um, which is loan non-repayment more than they should have, and they, there's some question as to whether they were guided incorrectly. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this is something where you can do an individualized um, situation where you can look at an individual person's thing and determine if they have hardships under the current acts. But a across the board, you know, it's 804,000 now. There was an, another 116 uh, billion with 3.4 million borrowers that was announced in July. And so um, these kind of across-the-board fixes are, are problematic. All right. Well, we will await uh, your legal challenge and uh, let the courts adjudicate it. It seems that this is a question that was already asked and answered, but this is a new permutation that uh, is going to require yet another legal judgment. And I, I, geez, I just feel sorry for the borrowers and others that are kind of caught in the middle as they keep hearing promises that maybe aren't deliverable. Uh, Patrick, we thank you uh, for, for uh, what you're doing, and we uh, keep us informed, will you? Former Vice President Mike Pence, he's reached that 40,000 unique donor threshold after already clearing the 1% national polling hurdle to become the eighth Republican presidential candidate to become eligible for the first debate later this month in Milwaukee. The road gets tougher after this month's primary uh, presidential uh, uh, debate. Nominees will have to clear 50,000 unique donors. Attorney Ben Johnson has a very full docket these days. On top of representing the families of the Oxford High School shooting victims, he's also representing a Chelsea man who had two massive strokes after receiving a dose of the COVID drug remdesivir that was contaminated with microscopic pieces of glass. He discusses both cases on JR Afternoon with Chris Renwick. You know, going back in time when we were talking about COVID-19 vaccines and, and whether or not the makers of those drugs should have immunity should things happen to people. Well, in most cases, they do. Although a judge in Washtenaw County now has denied a drug maker immunity in the case of contaminated remdesivir. Because this particular dosage of remdesivir contained glass particles. And as a result, one man locally had a stroke after receiving contaminated remdesivir and now has been irreparably damaged going on for the rest of his life. Attorney Ven Johnson represents this man locally. Ven, it's good to have you with us. Talk to me a little bit about this case. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, this is uh, the case of Mark, or actually Nowacki, Dan Nowacki, our client, uh, against Gilead, G-I-L-E-A-D, Gilead Sciences, Inc., as well as St. Joseph Mercy Hospital, Chelsea, where, just like you indicated, uh, my client was was given uh, the Rendezivir 
and it had glass particles. And I know, Chris, I can already feel you. Glass particles as part of the drug, which ultimately, of course, he therefore ingested into his bloodstream. And uh, he had not only one major stroke, but two, oh. and sadly has had one of his legs amputated as a result of that. Oh my God. Permanently, permanently, irreparably harmed. 24-hour day care, uh, you know, 24-7, 365. Then it's in, absolutely it is horrible. In your investigation into this, was this a... Was this a an ingredient in remdesivir, or was this contaminated after it was made? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, the answer is after it was made. And I don't, Chris, have a whole lot of more answers to questions beyond that. Okay. Because for the last nine months now, okay, we've been chasing big pharma around so they could file uh, their motions, both in federal court and then in state court, trying to get out, just like you told your listeners, arguing drug immunity hey, this was approved by the FDA, knowing full well, Chris, that they, quote, voluntarily, I put that in quotes for now, voluntarily recalled this product after they found out that there were glass particles in it. They took it off the market. So, and as part of taking it off the market, in their own press release back in December of 2021, they admit that if you take this and the glass particles get into your bloodstream, it can uh, block various organs, block blood vessels in the heart, lungs, or brain, can cause a stroke and even lead to death. So the exact same thing, what's happened to my client, they've known about, and yet after they get sued, all they do is file motions, delay, defend, deny, and, and we get to chase them all over until now. Now we're going to get ready to start getting busy and doing the, the depositions and so forth, thanks to Judge Kunke's recent uh, ruling. How, how unusual is it that, the immunity is waved away in, in cases like this. <laughs> well, your, your preamble, brother, was right on, and you are 100% right. I don't think a lot of people out there in the state of Michigan, we have a state law. It's total immunity for drug companies uh, because, of course, they, they go through the FDA and get it approved. And, and before that became our law, you could sue a drug company. Uh, and then as part of your case, go into discovery, get depositions, and find out what they really knew about and what they did, didn't and didn't warn about. Those days were gone. And then after the Michigan immunity statute, Chris, uh, then the feds passed one as well, saying basically if you get it approved by FDA, uh, you're immune, which is ridiculous, but that's the deal, and you are 100% right. But here, just like you mentioned, Judge Kunke has ruled – uh, in Washtenaw County, Ann Arbor, right, that this the, the glass particles were not a part of this drug that was intended, right, when it was made. That's not what the FDA approved. The FDA never approved and said, yeah, why don't you put glass particles uh, in your in your drug? Thankfully. So she, yeah, think, right? <laughs> so, yeah, but you were 100%, 100% right on it, and now we're going to be able to start taking depositions and get to the bottom of this because I'll bet you this, they knew about this, Chris, they, when they did this, Quote, voluntary recall, which between you and me, nothing's ever voluntary because, mm -hmm. you know, the FDA is involved. They, they, they did their press release on December 3, 2021. I'm reading. Only, that's three, not even three weeks, Chris, after my client had stroke number one. Mm. Okay. And then what it tells you is their, their press release on that first page where it says company announcement. So I know you have it. And they specifically said they figured this out when they received a customer complaint that was confirmed by the firm's investigation, meaning their own. You know they didn't do that investigation overnight. 
So what I think the evidence is going to prove, Chris, they knew before the date of our client's uh, stroke on November 19, 2021, I think the evidence is going to prove that they knew that th- this uh, uh, glass particulate was in this. Was, and they did nothing what was that it. customer complaint, Dan's? Well, no, sir, it was not. It was not. Huh. So Who are you going to depose in this case? Who are you going to talk to? <laughs> there's going to be a laundry list of them, brother. And there's going to be, but especially the folks uh, in their, you know, their marketing department. And, the, and, and we're going to, we're going to get to the bottom of where this glass came from and how it got there and how they didn't catch it before it went out. And then obviously we're also as part of their recall campaign, we're going to, we're going to have the timing. It'll be a timeline or chronology, if you will. And we're going to find out what they knew, when they knew it, and how long it took them. And by the way, just in case uh, you didn't see it in your materials, uh, when the hospital, when when St. Joe found out, um, they never told our clients, it never answered our clients. Our clients heard about this press release about a month after it was done and said, hey, can you tell us, uh, hospital, did did our dad get this drug? And then they never got an answer, Dan, until April. I'm looking at the letter. April 6th of 2022. That's like six months after his stroke. And the hospital never told him, and Gilead never told my clients about it. Then is Dan out of the woods? No, sir. He's not. He's, uh, uh, like I said, 20, in need of 24-7 care. Mm. His, his beautiful uh, bride, Kathleen, takes great care of him, and his sons and his brother do a great job of helping take care of him. But, I mean, he's, he's, he's fully dependent on them. Mm. So the stroke, unfortunately, really just absolutely destroyed the man that he was. And it was just a tragedy out there trying to listen to his family describe the, the changes in him and, of course, the changes in their life. Anybody that's taking care of somebody knows, right, it's 24-7. There is no rest. And it's just a horrible situation that Gilead has the ability to take care of Chris, and they need to step up and do the right thing. Um, in the meantime, we, we keep us up to date on that um, because this is a story yes, I want to continue to follow. In the meantime, I, I, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you about this story in the Detroit News today. They got an email um, right. that from from in the Oxford case, the the attorneys for the school district told a number of people, I believe it was six people, not to cooperate right. with the guidepost investigation. Obviously, you have a stake in that uh, investigation. You're representing a number of folks. What uh, what what did you make of that? Well, uh, it, we face that in every case, Chris. So you know, I've been I, I'll be critical of the uh, defense lawyers when they deserve it. But in this particular case, although I don't think I would have handled it this way, in fact, I'll tell you exactly how I did handle it. I told my client, Guidepost called me directly and said, "We want to interview your clients, and we understand that you may say no, or I say yes, but we wanted to reach out." So then I wrote a letter called or both all my clients and said, if you want to talk, talk. If you don't, don't. Your call, not mine. And I think all of my clients did. But to be fair, uh, the defense lawyers don't like it when people that are that are actually a part of a lawsuit are talking sure. and giving a because di- it's sure. it could, and it could end up being a different version yep. of what they. And, and, and like they mentioned, it could be much more difficult to uh, defend. Uh, Van Johnson, good to talk with you. Thanks for the info. Appreciate you. All right. When we come back, we're going up north to get you ready for JR Morning. It's first thing with Mike Parsons on WJR. All right. So I have uh, located one member of the JR Morning Show. Nick Roddy is back here in studio. 
Uh, but uh, once again, it's time for my favorite new radio game show called Where in the World Are uh, Guy Gordon and Lloyd Jackson. And today uh, they join us from, uh, what is it, day three of the 2023 Pure Michigan Ag Tour from, uh, it, it's probably my favorite place in Michigan, guys. Where 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 am I talking to you from today? Well, first of all, can I just say on behalf of Lloyd Jackson, you didn't have to put us on the milk carton. We would have told you <laughs> where we were. I just, um, well, you know, we I just... are in the beautiful... <coughs> We left one bay, one beautiful bay in Bay City, and exchanged it for another. We are in Grand Traverse Bay uh, in Traverse City, and uh, we are uh, overlooking a dark Grand Traverse Bay, but, boy, it was beautiful yes. yesterday. Oh, boy. man, it was it was awesome yesterday. Well, and then- So uh, we are in the Cherry County for Agriculture Week. We're also in wine country, and so far this morning we've sampled neither, but we're hopeful. Yes. <laughs> Hope springs eternal. Well, I, I would imagine there's more sun and, and 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 possibly more wine as the show goes on. I might suggest waiting till after, but you're grown adults; you can do what you want. Uh, my my that two doesn't mean we're responsible adults, that's right, right? That's true. Yeah, I, I'm glad Tony Butler, the engineer, is down there because someone's got to be an adult in the room. Uh, in, in Traverse City, my two favorite spots are uh, the Chateau Chantel Winery. That's got the best view, I think, in the entire Grand Traverse uh, area. And the insane... Do you speak with a French accent when you're there? Uh, yeah, but it, somehow it comes off as German. I don't know why. It must be my, the Polish in me. <laughs> and then my second favorite place is the old insane asylum that they turned into a charming collection of boutique shops. It's actually quite delightful and terrifying at the same time. Um, so, yeah, so if you want to go a little crazy with your credit cards, there you go. The, 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 the impulse is perfectly natural. <laughs> right. That, yeah, that's actually um, good branding yeah. for that place. It, um, it is something for everybody here. And uh, we had time to kill yesterday, did a little shopping. And, it, I mean, they, they have some amazing boutique shops. I saw one of the coolest photographs I've ever seen. There's a guy that does drone photographs, and he does them. He did one from high above the Mackinac Bridge. So wow. think of a bird's wow. eye view from a few hundred feet above the Mackinac Bridge looking down. And he did it when the ice was breaking up in the straits. Oh, that's even better. And it's just this magnificent bird's eye view of the, of this bridge. And when you first see it, you kind of go, what the heck is that? And then it, it dawns on you uh, what it is. So it's wow. just cool stuff. Yeah, that sounds sounds like a beautiful picture. Sad news yesterday. Um, I, I think we all knew that, that Jim Price was in failing health. Despite that, he was doing Tigers games uh, up until very recently. But it turned out that uh, uh, he passed. July 9th. Yeah, yeah. J- July 9th. And, wow, a, a month a month to, to the day of today. And, uh, of course, we, we found out that he passed away at the age of, of 81. Uh, I think it was Monday, but it was announced yesterday. And, um, you know, obviously, Ernie Harwell is, is the GOAT, not only in Detroit sports, but but he's on the Mount Rushmore of baseball overall. Uh, anyone who goes into that radio booth is going to be in his shadow. But, you know, for for, you know, people my age, late 30s and younger, um, you know, we, we we knew Dan Dickerson and we knew Jim Price as kind of the this team that came in in the post Harwell era and, and kind of became those uh, those friendly voices on summer nights on the radio. 
And uh, it, it, it's been great to see the outpouring of Jim Price. I don't know if either uh, if anyone here knew him personally, but uh, uh, of course, everyone says nice things about you after you die. But even when he was was alive, I heard nothing but good things about him. Well, and for, for good reason. He was a super guy, very modest guy, by the way. And he also, I mean, he was an anchor man at, at Fox 2. He, he kind of started his career in broadcasting, uh, doing weekend sports uh, before it was Fox. It was a CBS affiliate back then. Uh, I have a, a, a memory of Jim Price because the first ball game I ever saw in person was with a group from the YMCA in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We drove down to Tiger Stadium in July of 1969. Luis Tiant was on the mound for the Cleveland Indians, and Jim Price was behind the plate for the Tigers. And I was, you know, as a kid, I was kind of disappointed because I wanted to see freehand. Right. That day, Jim Price lit it up. He had what was maybe his best day uh, at the plate, five RBIs, a home run, and led the Tigers to, to a 16-3 to victory over the uh, <laughs> over the Indians. And he, was a one, he and Don Wirt that day were one-man wrecking crews. And they were, you know, neither one of them, I think, I think Jim had a 218 batting average and 18 home runs. Well, uh, I'm pretty sure I saw two of them that day. <laughs> wow. Uh, so. What a great I mean, it first was, he, game. That was my introduction you know? <laughs> to Tiger baseball <laughs> yeah. in person. And I told Jim about that. I said, you, you were my hero on, on the first game I ever saw as a 10-year-old kid. Wow. But as a, I tell you, the thing that he, he made a great difference uh, back in 2000 uh, and in the 90s, if you asked to talk to somebody about being on the spectrum, nobody knew what the heck you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Jim Price uh, put autism on the radar in Metro Detroit by opening Jack. And that, to me, is going to be the lasting legacy that I'll, I'll be forever grateful for because it gave families I knew a place to go for understanding, compassion, information, and uh, that's that's going to you know long after the cheers fade from your baseball days, and think that will have an impact. A gift that keeps on giving. Yes. Yeah, and and it's amazing how how a guy who spent five five years with us as a backup catcher during his playing days, he stuck around. Um, he became uh, you know not only beloved in the Detroit sports community, but in the Detroit community. Overall, uh, we're actually going to be talking to Dan Dickerson. I, I'm looking forward to that interview at 8:35, talking yeah. about the, uh, the 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 life, career, and passing of Jim Price, and I'm sure he'll have great stories for us as well. See you soon.